when we think about best cleaners, best tissues, all these things we have names for and we have brands that come to our mind and they exist in the top three, you have to get really real with yourself and as the brand owner to say, do you belong in that list or, or, or will you belong? Will you show up in that list? And if you do not show up on that list, think about repositioning a little bit because it doesn't mean that you can't ever get there. But if you don't find a placement for yourself now, it's going to be really hard to make it into that stage for future growth. We still reference uh, people, great copywriters from uh, Dan Kennedy to uh, Direct Response World, where when we look at the way that they've written copy, it's still outstanding. It still performs so well. And we believe that copy has to lead in, in when it comes to landing pages and work. You're, not, you're never finding a, a needle in a haystack that's moving your conversion rates up by 200, 300%. What you're finding is incremental gains and incremental changes. So what we look at at Anata and, and where like the, we've really kind of seen CRO kind of trend towards it and work towards is finding opportunities against these benchmarks and understanding what the value is. So is, is this a $2 million opportunity? Is this a $5 million opportunity? So on today's episode, we're going to learn from an e-commerce growth expert whose agency has supported the astronomical growth of digital native brands like Athletic Greens, Rothy's, Dollar Shave Club, and 100 plus D2C brands. It's a great episode. You don't want to miss it. Do stay tuned. This is the 2X e-commerce podcast hosted by Kunle Campbell. Welcome to today's episode of the 2X e-commerce podcast. I am Kunle Campbell, your host and chaperone with the promise to you that when you listen to any podcast episode we publish, you will take on fresh insights you can deploy as an experiment to grow or 2x aspects of your own e-commerce business. This podcast has been specifically produced to support the growth of your brand through e-commerce as a channel. We do this by either you hearing directly from me or through interviews with other e-commerce operators with growth stories or from experts that are part of a remarkable growth story. Speaking about experts being part of remarkable growth stories, my guest today is Nirav Sheth, the CEO and founder of Anata, a turnkey user experience and user interface and tech development agency that provides turnkey digital products teams for middle market e-commerce brands with revenues between 25 to $500 million. For some context, Anata's clients list consists of household name consumer brands that are one, typically digital native, two, serious about D2C as a channel. So brands like Athletic Greens, True Botanicals, Dollar Shave Club, Molecule, and Rothy's. So why should you listen to this episode? Well, in this episode, Nirav reveals the secret growth formula of consumer brands in the revenue brackets of 25 to 500 million his agency caters for. He says that they are founded on three key growth pillars. The first is optimization in the form of CRO or conversion rate optimization, user experience and user interface design. Positioning, they've mastered the science and art of, of positioning and targeting audiences and writing. They write a lot more sales copy 
than their nearest competitors. We also talk about speed. That's a need for speed, leaky funnels, tech stacks, headless commerce, and landing pages. So without further ado, let's get started. Let's take a short pause to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Want to improve your e-commerce customer experience with the power of AI? Tidio, the highest rated live chat app on Shopify, has you covered. With Tidio AI-powered chatbots and live chat, you can automate up to 73% of recurring questions, providing excellent customer support while creating a personalized shopping recommendation that increases your conversion rate. Tidio not only resolves tickets, but also creates sales opportunities, making it a must-have for e-commerce operators. With dozens of e-commerce tool integrations and the ability to manage all communication channels in one dashboard, Tidio simplifies your customer interactions. And with the Tidio Plus plan, you get a dedicated customer success manager to help you unlock the full potential of Tidio's features. Join over 300,000 businesses in revolutionizing your customer experience with Tidio. Head to tidio.com slash 2x for a special offer and try Tidio for free today. Hey, Nirav, welcome to the 2x e-commerce podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic, fantastic. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Austin, Texas. Well, nice, nice, really, really nice. And I guess weather is shaping up there. It's getting hot. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. It's spring care anyway in the UK. Okay, I've been doing a lot of research on on what you guys do. That's Anata. Um, let's really just get back to what Anata is and a small backstory from, from you will be, will be terrific to set the context. Yeah. I would love that. Uh, so Anata, we, we see Anata as truly the anti-agency. Um, while there's a lot of agencies in the e-commerce space, there's three things that we just really did not vibe with when it came to the agency space. And we see ourselves as partners to the brands that we work with. Um, here, here's what I mean by that. Number one, we don't use billable hours. Um, billable hours, we, we, we went away from in 2012, about five years into the company. Because what we noticed is that when we were working on billable hours, what we were, our aim was to, as just a business natively, regardless of how ethically I ran the company, it was very much focused that if we wanted more revenue, it meant that we had to incur more billable hours. And the brands that we worked with wanted efficiency, strategy, ideas about how to improve without thinking about what, how many hours this was going to take. So naturally, we were just in disalignment if when we focused on billable hours. Okay. Number two... We, we just don't split staff. Um, when we, what we realize is that we, as an agency and working towards with, with the brands, we ended up focusing on the clients that yelled at us the loudest. That's just typical in the agency world that whichever client yells at you is where you put your focus. So every time you are split and you split staff and say a designer is now going to be on three different projects, no matter how well you execute and say 15 hours here, 10 hours here, another 15 hours here, we only lean towards who yelled at us loudest because it's just, we're trying to shut down the noise. And then when we did that, we didn't ethically and we didn't properly give the time and attention needed per client and per person that we were working with. And third, that we saw that just really hurts in the agency space is when you work in silos, when you work alone and what the client 
gets to interact with is just a single individual, a single project manager that obfuscates the, the whole kind of interaction of what's happening. What is the developer working on? What is the designer working on? What's the team focused on? It's, hey, we're, we have this project. We're going to go after it. Let's talk in two weeks and we'll deliver something. So we saw all those things happening. And this is us doing these things. For the first five years of Anata from 2008 to 2012, roughly, we did all these things. We split staff. We worked hourly. And it just didn't work for the brands that we spoke to. And we took one of those harder, harder looks at our company by talking to our clients and saying, hey, what's working? What's not working? And these are the things that kept coming up. So we changed the business model. And we said, listen, we're instead, as, as a partner to, to you and to be, for you to be successful, we have to be in alignment with what you do. Which means that if you're going after profitability, if you're going after gross revenue, you're focusing on retention, let's be on the same page and let's, get, let's go after the same goals. And that means that let's just focus on flat retainer, meaning you're paying for a team. So the team is, is what it is. And we're giving full dedicated staff to you. That means dedicated designer, dedicated developer, a project manager, quality assurance, all of this building a core digital product team that feels like you're in-house, but you're not having to worry about hiring, churn, how to keep these people going and, and feeling effective in their work. And building the level of that we become an extension of the team by operating under the transparency of the brand. So right. when the brand is asking us to complete something or run a sprint, we're showing them everything so that they know exactly what we're working on. So because there's nothing to hide when you're dedicated and, and fully staffed with them, there's nothing to hide, be fully transparent, and then we really become an extension of the, of the team. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing this model play out um, a, a bit more now in the industry. So just last week, I interviewed um, another agency owner. It was like a New York agency owner, and um, they they're up they more they need they're they're leaning more to to your model where it's um, an, a dedicated you know member of staff that works per per account. And I, and I guess you know where 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 focus goes, you know, um, there, there there's a potential for 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 growth. Now, for people who don't know too much about Anata, you you guys are almost like uh, your, your, your UX, your, your developers, your product people, your e-commerce product people, or you, you build out digital products, but, but it, it's, it's, it's not digital products in the traditional sense of things. You want to break down um, your view on, on digital products in the context of commerce because you're exclusively e-commerce and that sort of um, caught my attention when you're talking about digital products and then e-commerce. I couldn't quite put them in the same um, context. So I'd like you to clarify, please. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, those, those sometimes it's hard, I, it is hard to bridge the gap. And so the, the, the best way to explain it is having a full dedicated team working specifically across your entire D2C channel. So the, the, the people who are part of the digital product, whether it's UX researchers, UX and interaction designers, front end and back end or full stack engineers, mm -hmm. quality assurance, project management, all of these things that are specifically focused on elevating and optimizing your D2C channels across your let's say your Shopify website, your, uh, your ad, like how the landing pages work and, and the acquisition funnels related to that, the right. emails and, and retention strategies, customer portals, subscription side, all full realm of D2C, but building, because all of that 
is contained as where a traditional company who's not leveraging all these systems would be building this as a digital product. We would be then harnessing those systems to be able to elevate that and, and optimize for it. So, so essentially you're responsible for like the digital customer experience, like the digital CX, um, every, the, the, the entire stack. Is, is, is that where... Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Every touch point that the consumer has on the, on the D2C on the D2C side D2C is channel. where we touch. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. That, that clarifies a lot, a lot. So with Athletic Greens, which, which have been AG1, who, who've been, um, who are still your clients, you know, you started out with yes. them in 2017. At what size from a revenue standpoint were they when they approached yourselves and how you know, it's been what six, if my math is right, um, we're talking um, about seven years with yourselves. Over this seven years, how, how have they evolved um, generally from their approach to, to rolling out, you know, um, UX, um, their approach to, to deploying their D2C strategy? I'd I just like to get a glimpse, please. Yeah. So when they first started with us, they were just probably around sub, sub 20 million. Um, in, in revenue. And, you know, at this stage, without sharing any numbers, that they've been valued close to what we've seen in the market be talked about close to a billion dollars okay. in, in revenue. So very, very big difference between the two. And when we first started working with them, they had one to two core channels that they were uh, really activated. So what right nowadays we see them on direct TV, we see them on uh, billboards, we see them on various podcasts, including NPR. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case when they first started. It was on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Seth Rogen's podcast was, was not existent at that time. They were, uh, or was, was very small at that time. Uh, and they were really activated through the specifically the health and wellness vertical. So they very, very much were focused on health and wellness. So there's only one or two channels with one to two landing pages. What a lot of people don't see and, and don't know that they Athletic Greens has had is that they've had uh, fish oil, they've had vitamin D, mm. they've had uh, a couple other supplements where previously, as as we all know now, it's the all-in-one supplement. But at that time, they still had a few other products existing during that period of time. So as the years have evolved, things have tightened up in terms of the messaging and the positioning. Uh, so as the digital product evolved, what they've seen is that they have uh, actually refined and gotten much, much better at telling their story from their landing pages to their homepage to their product page. What we've also understood is that they don't need a product page. Uh, as we've <laughs> made a singular product experience, there is no longer uh, a product listing page to a product detail page. Yeah. Everything is actually just sharing one story. So what's really unique about them is that we've had to then change those things up to being able to provide offers and understanding each channel and, and being able to specifically tackle that channel from how we optimize for that and how do we optimize for the buying experience mm -hmm. so that the consumer buying experience becomes so seamless and so clear in, in, that, in that way. So from a, that perspective, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of, of, of really different pivots and changes from broadening of their positioning uh, from health and wellness consumers to the larger consumer base overall, mm -hmm. to uh, being able to understand their tech architectures, um, made massive changes in their tech architectures from the day one to where they are now in terms of what their subscription platform leveraged, what their um, customer portal experience was, uh, and also being one of the very first sites. And we, we launched them in 2018 into the headless space. And so they're still headless and, and running on top of Shopify Plus. Interesting, super, super interesting. So with that sort of setup, at a from a client perspective, how many 
beyond their, their say e-commerce director or whatever role you know that person is how many technical personnel or or head do you what's a headcount for for tech in companies that outsource to um to to to, to agencies like 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 um like like, like anata yeah, so it depends. Uh, a lot of agencies, as uh, in, sorry, a lot of companies like Athletic Greens, like Rothy's that we've worked with, mm-hmm. like Mac Weldon and so many others, leverage us as their entire team. So that means that they scale. They started off with maybe two people, a designer and a developer, mm-hmm. and then they expand that into a pretty large base. We're at our heyday with Rothy's from when we started with them in 2014 to when we wrapped up with them in 2021. We had 16 people staffed with them mm-hmm. uh, full time. And that was inclusive of multiple UX researchers, multiple designers, uh, front-end developers, back-end developers, some people on the system side, etc. And then what we've seen on the business front with brands like both Athletic Greens, Rothy's, and others as they've scaled is that they continue to bring in more people on the business side to be able to help direct things with marketing, mm-hmm. with digital product management, um, and over time, now with Athletic Greens, there's a new CTO and there's members who are, are who've gotten to the C-level positions, mm-hmm. but we don't normally see C-level positions kind of pop up until they're uh, much more into as the post-enterprise uh, side of, of the business. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that makes sense. So they'll focus on on marketing, on operations, on strategy, on business strategy, while you guys, you know, sort out the execution from, you know, from a, from a technical standpoint and a UX standpoint. UX is very, very important. Okay, which brings me to my next question around, in, in your opinion, what should brands be very cognizant of to grow from an Anata perspective from from parts in which you're responsible in in that you know growth stack because it's multifaceted um when they're focusing on on their marketing on their product launches and on their um you know on on their ops and their fulfillment and channel marketing what do you focus on what what key principles drive the scale they're they're looking these these ambitious brands are looking to to to, to achieve yeah, such a great question. And uh, and I think it needs to be asked more times from, from, from others because what in the, fair, in, in the times where they're spending on business initiatives from all the different marketing calendar items to do launches, the areas that they end up missing out on are what are the things that are leaking in the funnel. I would start there. And so what we, what we always try to do right from the beginning is fix leaky funnels. And leaky funnels means usability issues and missing best practices in e-commerce. Think about when e-commerce started back in early 2000s till, you know, it's really started picking up in the DNVB, D2C side, 2011, 2012 period. And we have now over 10 to 20 years of research and data that tells us what are best practices. Still today, there's a lot of brands who want to reinvent the e-commerce funnel. They want to reinvent the product listing page, the product detail page, the cart, the checkout experiences. And what that means is that you're breaking best practices. You're asking the consumer who already has so many things in their mind and you're creating dissonance in them. And that will always cause the user to abandon. So being able to follow best practices by... There's two companies that we really leverage at Anata. One is Nielsen Norman Group because they've been around for so long and have been done such fantastic research in the usability space. 
but another company out of Copenhagen in Denmark called Baymart. They have over 200,000 hours of usability research, and we got certified under them very, very early on. I got to meet uh, both founders, Jamie Appleseed and, and Christian Holtz, very early into their careers. And just seeing the research that they put out was so fantastic because once we started implementing these best practices, we started seeing conversion rates really take a take, take a huge escalation. Mm-hmm. And it, you wouldn't think by just fixing a bunch of leaky funnels that conversion rates would go up, but they do. They do every single time, especially because we're fixing these small little things, but they end up being big things in towards the usability. So I would say starting there is always the most pivotal component. Two, looking at the tech stack overall and seeing what is preventing marketing teams from excelling. Too many times when the tech gets looked at from pure tech people, they look at efficiencies on what's going to be the best for deployments, code, what's going to be uh, reducing code size and being able to have a more optimized system. But those optimized systems are not always paying attention to what's actually best for business objectives. And what that means to us at Anata has always been what enables the marketing and the sales team and the customer experience team to do their job so well. And if it becomes an enablement tool, then we're winning because we're, the tech team, you know, we've, we've always shied away from taking attribution for all these industry leaders that we've gotten a chance to work with and their growth because we were not the people who were doing the marketing. We weren't the people doing the sales. They're the ones on the front lines doing the hard, hard work to be able to convince consumers and bring consumers to, to, to the site experience. But when they're on there, what are we doing to help them optimize and make sure that they make it through? And that means that we are, if we're enabling the tool set and enabling the tech stack to really allow them to do their job the best, we're allowing them to pivot, make changes, make updates to positioning, make updates to design, make updates to collateral in such ways that we can be able to test and try th- different things out. So enabling tech is such a vast, important capability and making sure that that tech is lightweight and simple enough for others to use. So I would say those two are really important. But the third thing, just want to plug in there, is being able to optimize for benchmarks and user journeys, understanding what is the industry average for various KPIs that you're going after, and is it worth to continue going after those KPIs or is it worth it to move to another KPI because you're already leading in that space? Sometimes we just don't know where the benchmarks lie. And so we think we can squeeze more juice out of something that really doesn't have any more juice to squeeze out of. And we should pivot to something that actually does have more juice to come come from that. Interesting. So, so leaky funnels, enabling tech. What are your thoughts on no-code platforms for, for marketing? I think they can be very beneficial. Uh, it all depends on how it gets leveraged. So if there's a no-code solution that allows for the branding to still be executed well, to allow for the positioning to be executed well, for the actual consumer buying experience to be really thoughtful, then I'm all for whatever is the simplest, most effective solution mm-hmm. towards getting consumers to have a buying experience that they like and that they can get, they can get behind. Okay, okay. And then the third really is this KPI decisioning where, where you're you know optimizing for a benchmark and you're you're kind of like um, evaluating to see if you know you've reached a point of no return or dimish, diminishing returns essentially and you're you're trying to, yeah. to, to to peak at certain KPIs. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, and I, and I just want to uh, if if it's okay just elaborate it. just a yeah. little bit on um as as we're having this conversation, one thing comes to mind is is uh, traditional CRO, um, where a lot of agencies focus on conversion rate optimization, saying, "Hey, let's put together a test team and let's test everything." 
And I have such a pet peeve with that because I think that testing everything is not the way to solution. We just got off a pretty large and, and pretty intensive uh, engagement with Dollar Shave Club, which was you know one of our industry leaders in, in uh, subscription run businesses and one of the biggest acquisitions when, when they got purchased by Unilever. And one of the things that we, not only did we pitch them, but we executed on with them was not trying to run a thousand tests. Because when we're running a thousand tests, one, it's incredibly hard to run a thousand tests at the same time. If once you get into running a team like that, it's so hard to put that many tests together. And two, to even get stat sig uh, or statistical significance in each one of those tests. And when we finally get something, we're looking for a needle in a haystack. We, we're seeing one winner out of maybe 30 tests, sometimes out of one out of, one out of every 40 tests that are winning. Well, one of the things that we don't measure, and in this industry, and we talk with talk to so many agencies about this, we see that winner and we're like, oh, we got to win. This was great. Well, what about the 39 other losers that, that you used during that same period of time? And how much revenue got lost from those 39 losses that you, did you actually end up making more money from that one win? And was that enough? Because when we think about raising capital and the whole game of venture capital, that whole game is around, you know, one winner out of 10 or one out of 20 still works out because you're, you're working for 50 or 100x. But that's not the same when it comes to CRO work. You're, not, you're never finding a, a needle in a haystack that's moving your conversion rates up by 200, 300%. What you're finding is incremental gains and incremental changes. So what we look at at Anata and, and where like the, we've really kind of seen CRO kind of trend towards it and work towards is finding opportunities against these benchmarks and understanding what the value is. So is, is this a $2 million opportunity? Is this a $5 million opportunity? Mm -hmm. And just like you mentioned, we'll know from a diminishing return side because if we if it was a $2 million opportunity and we've gotten ourselves to one, one million of that or one and a half million of that, there's only another half a million left. Now, do you want to put all your energy behind that half a million dollar opportunity or is there another $5 million opportunity that's sitting for you that even if you make a little dent in that, that'll make up for how hard you have to work towards that extra half a million in the first opportunity. So benchmarking and the way to do that level of testing makes so much more sense and has, uh, it, it's making you think outside of the box for bigger tests and bigger ideas versus changing the color of a button or changing headline text, which just in our opinion, just has not worked to see significant gains or significant moves in, in, in the needle. Let's take a short pause to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. If you're looking to take your e-commerce growth to the next level, I highly recommend checking out Recharge for your recurring payments and subscription management needs. With Recharge, you'll be able to streamline your recurring payments, create predictability, and even further automate your business. So don't wait. Get started with the subscription platform trusted by over 50 million subscribers across the world. Try Recharge today and see how it can help you retain your customers and grow your business. So head over to rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. That is rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I really like the, the bits in which you apply value to, to a project, you know, to a test or to a change. Um, yeah. Actually assigning value to it creates or establishes the stakes involved in it. Um, and, and then 
it's much more tangible to to say okay if it's worth this monetarily then um yeah this is the amount of time we we can potentially invest in this everything you know sort of gets reparatized eventually because you're you're trying to optimize yeah. you know based on that so so i i, I really you know re- really like 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 that okay so from from a ux standpoint you, you talked about the fact that um you know like ag1 they transitioned from product listing and you know product you know um, description pages pdps to to landing pages because it was sort of re- they've refined their product offerings over over time to to this landing page experience is is this a, a trend where in dtc where um you know um it's becoming more of a product focus or is this just unique to, to certain, um, you know, verticals in, 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 in e-commerce or in, in consumer branding? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it comes more towards from a placement of human psychology and where we are starting to lose more and more mind space overall when encompassing a brand. So let me, let me talk a little bit uh, more expansive about that. When we're showing deep product detail pages or, or large product listing pages, what we're asking the consumer to do is make a decision about what they want, where they want, how much do they want of it, what's the value that they're willing to spend. We're asking them to do it multiple times. When when we have a brand like Athletic Greens, which is just selling one product, which is so great, it's asking the consumer just to stay very narrowly focused on something. But not every store and not every brand can do that. The majority of the brands that we work with Anata are not singular brand companies. So they can't have just a singular positioning, singular message and focus on a singular product. But can you do that for first time visitors is the question. Because you're not going to do that across the entire brand experience. But can you do that for when the consumer first comes to the site experience? Can you narrow the window of what you're offering? And I believe that that's the way from an acquisition standpoint that you can narrow the focus to leveraging whether it's a single landing page or a landing page that has uh, one or two offers being clearly outlined. And we started seeing this in the initial stages with brands that started focusing on category pages that had bestsellers listed. You're narrowing and you're refining the focus for the consumer to say, hey, pay attention here before you go browsing. And if you want the consumer to really browse, you are asking a lot from them. You are asking them to figure out what they want. And if you're if you purchase them and it depends on the acquisition funnel that you brought them in from. If you brought them in from a paid acquisition funnel, do you have that level of trust built with them? Do you have that level of attention built with them that they're going to do those actions? And most of the time the answer is no. You don't have the trust built in. They just clicked over an ad and they just are getting doing some level of discovery and if they don't like something or they don't immediately see something that they don't want, they will abandon and they will leave. Now, can you bring them back? Sure, you can do a lot of different things. But that's where these segmented landing pages where you take segments of audiences and gear them towards a certain set of products can work. That doesn't mean that they can't come back and explore the rest of the user journey, but can you segment them in a way where they're really just focusing on a very narrow navigation path, a very narrow set of products that you offer, a very clear messaging to get them to either become a consumer or to at least engage with you in the beginning so that they can get you have the opportunity to expand trust. And when you've expanded trust and you've expanded that emotional, hey, I like your products, I like your brand, I like your story, 
then you can be able to allow them to discover. Mm-hmm. But you can't, allowing them to just immediately go discovering is, is not something that we've seen from both our user studies and, and user testing. We haven't seen consumers just go out exploring and stay on a brand site for very long um, when they haven't built the, the level of trust. Needed. Yeah, and, and those trust pointers are social proof customers. The, the product actually works from other humans. And uh, I would think um, leaning on on um, on accreditation, so as in on or you know um, pairing yourself up with with other you know trustworthy um, either personalities or um, or brands or platforms or media platforms. Um, so, so how how much of an index would how how much would you index into into trust? What, what are your key components you lean on to build in trust for first-time customers? And then what's the micro-conversion you expect to, for, for that exchange if, if you don't expect it to be um, a transactional impulse purchase where, where you're just trying to seed the essentially trust, right? And the idea that um, we yeah. are, you know, among that top seven or top top five, you know, brands you should be thinking of when when you're, you know, trying to, to, to purchase or patronize, you know, um, when we're trying to purchase a particular, you know, product or in 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 a niche. Yeah. So so I'll start with the first part of the question, which is around uh, all the different trust factors that need to be leveraged to 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 start building that trust. Um, a lot of times, trust can be built from just one simple uh, influencer or one certain person that they someone gravitate towards and says, "Hey, if that person approves it, I'm in. I'm good." But sometimes it it doesn't require a ton of different different outlets, but it just requires the right one for that segment of audience and the, for that grouping. So that's why it's important to know where that segment of audience is coming from so you can understand what potential methods could work. But a lot of the things that you mentioned already are super important as seen on so that they could be able to val- validate that this brand is is real and that it's not, a, it's not a fake brand or it's not trying to steal something from them. Um, seeing c- real customer reviews and seeing what, what those are and those are not cherry picked, but that they could be able to filter and find and go through other reviews to be able to do it because it has to be authentic. Just seeing a name nev- not doesn't work anymore. People need to see photographs. People need to see videos. Those have to feel like they're actual real consumers, not uh, made up uh, specific ones or, or advertisements being leveraged mm-hmm. for that. Um, being able to then see influencers or in the supplement space, what we're seeing is just accreditation from people who are wellness practitioners or doctors. Those make a massive difference in towards the consumer trust capability, especially around supplements. When you see that being uh, having an endorsement by a doctor or by somebody that they look up to, um, that makes a huge difference. Now that is different in the in the space of fashion. So like it's not going to work the same in fashion where the in the fashion space they are looking for specific influencers or specific groups of people wearing that or or, or modeling it. Uh, and that makes a big difference of that being seen. But those are all components that will start to build trust in that factor. And they just need to get one of those components in them. And once they've gotten that, then they're going to go uh, navigate through the user experience from there. Super interesting. Super interesting. Okay. So at Anata, you cater to like three categories of of businesses, of, of e-commerce business. I just love the fact that you focus on e-commerce. Um, according to your website, the first is emerging, which are, you know, um, businesses uh, that are just above the 25 million, you know, revenue mark. So Athletic Greens, when they, they, re- they outreached you. Um, growth, above 75 million. And then you have established, which is above 200 million. There's so many sort of nuanced um 
just components in 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 growing from each 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 base camp from from emerging to to growth and growth to to, to established. Before we get into that, I, I want to to ask you a question around landing pages. Right. Um, what comes first? Because this would this would cut across all all these groups of of um, of, of customers. Was, do, do you do you design with copy in mind first? Do you get a the piece of copy for a landing page and say, okay, we're going to design around this copy? Um, is it iterative? Do you come up with a design concept and then work with a copywriter? What, what is the what is a build of a of a landing page? Now, I, I, why, the reason I'm asking this is I want you to speak to sub sub 20 million brands listening to, to this episode so they can use landing pages as their arsenal to bolster them to that level of you know 20 million plus so, so how, how do you approach landing pages and um, how many you know um, how many experts are involved in in rolling out a, a landing page yeah so let me start with this um, one of the traditional ways sub $25 million brands, but just really everybody does, is they look at other competitors' sites and they say, hey, that landing page looks great. We should model off of that. And the reality is you have no idea if that landing page is converting. I do because I have access to the data and, and I see that. But many other brands do not have access to the conversion rate of these landing pages. So the first thing I would say to avoid is this idea that because some other brand is doing it, that it's working. That's not true at all. Most of the times it's not working. They just have it up because that's the only thing they know how to do. And they're doing the same thing, which is they're looking at their competitors and trying to model off of that. So competitor-based methods of building landing pages is just not a smart or effective way to actually work for yourself. So I'll say that as a caveat before I start anything else. Once, uh, I, I, I think it is a very iterative process, but I don't want to just go into making that the answer because essentially it always starts with great copy and telling things like a, a story. The, we still reference uh, people, great copywriters from uh, Dan Kennedy to uh, Direct Response World, where when we look at the way that they've written copy, it's still outstanding. It still performs so well. And we believe that copy has to lead in, in when it comes to landing pages and work. And it's based on what, are the, what is the positioning you're setting out for your brand and, and the product that, that you're looking to sell or the set of products that you're looking to sell and position that well and then work on actually creating a sales letter and a sales process. Because with that, you can then leverage that with your designer to then create a version, a first version of it. So when you create the first draft copy is when you create the very first draft wireframe or design of the landing page. And then you start going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until you see some refinement of that into a final evolved version. But all this to go to say that there are some best, practice to, best practices to leverage when it comes to landing page creation. Whether it's trust building factors that you need to include inside of there, whether it's how you leverage media and, and specific imagery, whether you're working with stock images or you're actually going to create photo shoot and videos for it. Because when you're using stock, you think, well, we just need an image here. No, you don't. You need an image that goes along with the copy and the story you're telling so that it all comes together because all of it is all storytelling. All of it is trying to convince the consumer to purchase something that you're asking them to purchase. And if you're just going to treat it as, well, I just need an image to uh, be able to buffer the content, it's not going to work. 
you needed to all hand and go play well hand in hand and be able to be leveraged to cons- to sell the consumer. So copy, while I always start with copy in, in our work, we will then go into being able to work with the designer going back and forth with that. And then really being able to come up with the requirements for the assets that we need for that page. So whether that's the videos, the audio, the, the imagery, the motion graphics that go along with it, it's, you all, we only add motion graphics and, and interactions and elements if it enhances the story. If it's just enhancing the design, we throw it out the window because it's just not going to help. People get gimmicks. People do not like them. They want it to go along with the story you're telling and feel like it's a part of the brand experience. So it's a lot of work, but when you do it right, it really works. And the, the, the second component that I'll say outside of the storytelling, the writing, all of that side of things is what is the offer you're presenting to the consumer? What are you asking them is the core set of products that you have, but what is the offer that they feel like is exclusive towards them? When we look at the brands that we've worked with, with whether it's Four Sigmatic to Athletic Greens to True Botanicals and so many more, the offer that we present to them, to any of their users who are coming in from specific channels, has to feel like it's a special offer for them and that they're getting more out of it from there. So designing an offer is as important as designing the rest of the page experience because it has to feel like an offer. If it's just a product that you're selling and it's normal price, normal everything, and it doesn't have to be a pricing fight, it just has to be a value proposition. And so what is the value that you're delivering in that offer and how do you present that in such a way? And by playing with those buy boxes and and what they provide and what they offer, those, while it's very direct, direct response type of work that if we think about from those times, it still applies today. And all the greatest copywriting tactics that we've learned from like some of the best copywriters during that time, whether it's Dan Kennedy and others, uh, they still work. And, they, and the reason why they work is that because they're just universal in the way that they're being taught and the way that they're, it's yeah, being structured. They speak to our human nature. They, 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 they're emotive and yeah, they, they, they understand human psychology. Um, I, I like that you've clarified yeah. the fact that um, it starts with copy. It's further iterative and most importantly, you skin it up. You know, um, you present it in a much more relevant, um, you know, format to to 2023, you know, um, shoppers or, or, or browsers, essentially. The one question I wanted to ask is if you design for mobile first, um, for mobile screens first, what, what, how, how has that evolved and um, what's your approach? Yeah, we're, we're always starting with mobile first. And that's just because right. now the dominant portion, the dominant audience, we see 70 to 80% of site visits happening on, on mobile devices. So if you don't design for mobile first, you're already doing it wrong just simply because you're designing for 20% versus the 80%. So designing for mobile first is absolutely essential, but also getting all those mobile attributes really done right. So mobile usability is so key in terms of sizing of buttons, sizing of text, where do things lie, not putting too much on the page at the same time. It's even a narrower focus in terms of the user journey when you're dealing with mobile because you just don't have as much space and really as much attention. We did this really amazing user uh, study with our client MGemi, and we showed them uh, their customers on mobile devices versus on desktop devices. The craziest thing that you'll see is that on mobile devices, because we use our mobile device while we're cooking, while we're taking care of our babies, while we're uh, 
playing a sport while, while like we're in the bathroom. We're, we're, regardless of where we're at, we're on our phones. But what, we're no, what we don't notice is that we don't ever have someone's full attention when, we're on, when we have their phone. They're always being distracted by something left or right of them. And you see that. You see their eye patterns. You see like someone talking to their husband or, or their partner. You see someone trying to take care of a baby at the same time. You see all of this happening while they're actually shopping on your site. Now, imagine if you have to compete against that, what type of experience do you need to design for in order to at least capture their attention? Where on the desktop side of things, we saw something completely different. They were so engaged, their eyes, we saw where their eye patterns were and their eyes were directly engaged with the page. They were scrolling, they were looking left to right, they were making the movement. So it's such a different user experience on the desktop because those who are on their desktop actually are much more focused and are ready to read and go through things where people on their phones just are not because you're competing with attention. And that's the, the biggest challenge with, with designing for mobile and understanding what you have to do on mobile to keep their attention. Because think, we already have less attention spans and it's getting lesser and lesser. So what can you do to really maximize and, and keep singular focuses? Mm. With what you do, you know, as much as a lot of it is engineering, um, another bit of it, another very significant part is, is UX and UI. Um, how, how much does analytics and reporting actually play into, into what you, you, you do? So it it's always helps us inform hypotheses and ideas that we're having. We're not using it exclusively to just collect data for the sake of data, but we're leveraging it to help us gain insights about something that we've already thinking is happening with, with the space. So certain KPIs we'll collect and, and watch and monitor from conversion rate, add to cart rates, bounce rates, exits, uh, click through to the funnel experience, um, being able to watch and, and track uh, various user experiences from the homepage and landing page and, 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 and scroll rates. Those are all really, really helpful. But then other pieces of data are only being leveraged as secondary or tertiary KPIs to help us justify why we believe something is happening. Mm-hmm. So we are using data and analytics as a way to create insights from, but we're not using it as pure data forms because conversion rates is one of the metrics and lifetime customer value. Think about how important these metrics have become in all e-commerce businesses and how many brands talk about it. But when those singular grand KPIs have so many uh, sub KPIs underneath of them that influence them that you really don't know why conversion rate one day was at 4.5% and another day was at 3%. You can come up with ideas, but if you singularly focus on that, you're really not doing the things to help it move in the right direction. So we're always leveraging as, as like ways to just keep a track, but it never tells us why. So that's when we're leveraging qualitative uh, data and qualitative research to indicate why is this happening and what could be the reasons behind it. And once we understand the why or get ideas about the why, that helps us inform how to improve specific quantitative metrics. Yeah, super interesting. The reason I asked was more um, towards the towards attribution, you know, whether or not you, you're, you're, you're into attribution and what the impact of the, you know, the, the ATT, um, you know, um, you know, update and, and the iOS 14, how, how it affected performance across the board um, at the middle market of, of, of DTC. Yeah. I mean, just watching what's happened in the industry overall, it's become very, very hard to attribute where the sales go to and with iOS 14 and, and the 
shakeup that it's caused, it's been very difficult to understand core core market attributions. But when we look at top line revenue, we look at overall LTV, those are, are strong indicators of what direction things are moving and which potential pieces are, are helping either assist the purchase or, or being directly attributed for the business. I think the direct attribution game is a really, really tough place to be in because you're singularly thinking that one thing is actually moving the needle when in reality, it's always been multiple sets of assists that, that help create the end consumer buying experience. And so we're, we're, we as an agency are paying attention to more of the top line side of things. And because of where the, the space is, where the industry is at overall with the economy of where it is, most brands are focusing towards profitability. And so we're leaning more towards more of the profitability metrics and looking at channels and seeing what is, uh, what is at least assisting in the attribution, if not directly being there for the, for, from a, um, uh, an ATT standpoint. Super interesting, super interesting. And, you know, there's this need for speed, you know, the bigger you you, you get. You, you mentioned, um, you know, moving clients of yours to headless. Um, there's there's also progressive web applications. Do you, do you want to just paint a, um, or rather um, amplify the the need for why, um, you know, listeners should be paying attention to, to, to page load times and, um, and essentially delivering a, a faster, speedy, more convenient experience for, 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 for customers or, or visitors on their website? Yeah, I'll, I'll break it down into one simple thing, which is going back towards our attention span. Since we just have less attention span and most of us are using mobile devices, we just have less time to interact with the consumer. And so the faster your site loads, just more time in sheer seconds you get with the consumer before they choose to go do something else. So site speed is absolutely and, and very, very important. What I would say is that what is the cost that you're willing to spend in order for that site speed? And is there a singular solution or is there multiple solutions? I recently gave a, a talk called Confessions of a Headless Advocate. And that was a talk that is me. I was the big headless advocate and I was constantly telling people to go headless because systems like Shopify just could not keep up with site speed. No matter what you did, and we were heavy optimizers, we could not get that site speed down to below like under one and a half second, no matter what we did. And that was in 2018. So that's the reason why in 2017, we took Rothy's headless, then we took Athletic Greens and Molecule and so and Four Sigmatic and so many others that headless because it just wasn't working. But in 2023, the technology landscape has just changed drastically. And I would say that I can actually get, and, and our agency has proven it, but we can get the same site speed leveraging Shopify Plus and its core theme engine than, than leveraging PWAs and headless. Because PWAs and headless were able to do that early on. And what we've realized is that you can, the, the TTLs with uh, specifically, and this is going into tech, but with Shopify Plus have, have decreased so Time dramatically. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and we are seeing that drop, but we can also leverage Shopify's own systems, whether it's their storefront URL and, and any system like this, they have their own APIs. We call that data back in and how you architect that front end can actually change how you, how you load. You can still have a really slow loading headless site. So headless does not imply that it immediately becomes faster. It just simply means that we're trying to reduce the overall load on the head which is what's loading and making that faster. And so if it's a headless site, you naturally have certain offloading that you don't have on a typical headed uh, system like Shopify or, or Magento or BigCommerce or any other system you might be leveraging. But 
that does not mean that that's the only way. Architecture still makes the biggest difference. So how you choose to architect your theme, how you choose to architect the site, and how you choose to architect your Google Tag Manager or your tag system. Because you don't know how many times tag managers have caused the decrease in, in site load times because they just have not been optimized or they're loading so many tracking pixels that you think, well, I need to track this, but are you willing to do it at the expense of potentially two to three seconds of load time that are being added into the mix? That's correct. That's correct. You yeah, can't, as in, I can't <laughs> add to, 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 to that. Really, it's, it's down to, to the architecture and technology really is, is speeding up. Speaking of technology, um, artificial intelligence has been the buzzword of 2023. What are your thoughts on, um, on, on AI and, and D2C you know, over the, the next 12 to 24 months? I love what I'm seeing in AI in general, um, from GPT-4 to what its capabilities is doing specifically around copywriting. So for e-commerce, I think copywriting and leveraging chat, uh, these, these AI platforms to help write better copy and more positioned copy for your brand is absolutely vital. What it can do for image and collateral creation is also very, very helpful. All if it can tie into your larger story. If it's just creating assets, it's still not going to work. It all depends on how well it ties into the, to the larger story. So I think that from a collateral and, and content perspective, it's doing really well from product recommendations to being able to leverage better product recommendations can be there. But sometimes brands need to think about how simple some of these things can be too. When they're a brand that has maybe 10 products or maybe even 50 products, can the recommendation come from an actual person who knows these products better than just relying on data or can it come or does it need to come from the data? I think sometimes we have to use a little bit more common sense on what we choose to leverage for both recommendation engines, personalization engines, segmentation, because we don't need all these core big buzzwords. Even the idea of segmentation is so simple that you're taking a group of people and making them go through a site experience that's different versus having everybody experience the same exact site. And you can create three segments. Like you don't need 50 segments. You can have three or four segments and still optimize and perform really well versus needing a segmentation engine or a personalization engine, which becomes so difficult to implement, so time consuming, and you have no idea what the bottom line is going to be. So I think from an AI perspective and looping that back in, what can you make use of it now? And there's a lot of really great tools that are being being leveraged, but I think it has to tie into your position and your storytelling. If you're just using it as another hack, those work for like those very startup people, like startup stages when you're going from like one to 5 million. When you're going from like 10 to 20, 20 to 50, 50 to 100, those hacks are not going to, what's going to be the, the reason why you move upstream in, in the way that you did in the past. I love that. <laughs> I love that. You couldn't have said it any, any, any better. Final question has to do with the foundations you know what what are the prerequisites you need to to um to essentially grow now um specifically in a d2c channel um to to all listeners what 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 what's your 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 sagery um advice to to listeners i would say let's just start out having repeatable and evergreen channels is so vital while we've all grown and seen the the overall D2C market grow from paid media and through one-time kind of uh, campaigns, the evergreen campaigns of email, uh, even potentially catalogs, things that stay with you are still so vital in terms of D2C marketing channels and subscriptions. 
some of the best businesses we work with are able to consistently create revenue through both their email channel, through their subscription engine, and through really great content that they're putting out there and, and keeping their audiences engaged. So my biggest advice is to not so focus and keep so heavily focused purely on one-time acquisition mediums, but to pay attention to those channels that if you give a little bit more love to, it will show you 10 times back in terms of rewards because you have customers. Most of the brands who have done $10 million to $20 million have customers that they have, but they're not paying attention to the opportunity that's with those customers. So we can call that retention for sure, but it's engaging those consumers, engaging those people with those opportunities of other channels and having repeatable channels in there. I'm still really bullish on D2C. I know that D2C has gotten a lot of hits and people are starting to move away and we see brands going more wholesale and going retail route, but look at why brands went to the D2C channel in the first place. The margins were incredible at, at, at those times. You were able to scale fast. You were able to have direct access to the consumer. Do you think that by moving to wholesale and retail that you're going to be able to contain all of those things? It might be a quick win right now that you're able to sell volume and sell over things that you bought too much of and to move product. But is it going to help you keep the margins on profitability? Or is it going to help you scale? Is it going to help you grow into the future? And to me, D2C still has that. It just means that we have to look at opportunities that we we didn't see before. What The brands that did so well in the early stages with Facebook, Instagram, they did so. But the ones that did even better were the ones who hooked them into an email uh, strategy as well as hooked them into a subscription strategy. Yeah. Because when the acquisition funnel tap turns off for a little bit, they still survive and they still are able to make it and still get sales. Where the other ones, that tap, that tap dries up, they're pretty much done. And so that's reason why it's diversifying the channels and making sure the other channels are up to par while the other like paid media opportunities exist mm-hmm. is so vital towards being able to grow a really industry-leading brand. And that's really what we, we love working with. As Adonata, we work with all the top industry leaders, whether it's Brands like Mack Weldon, whether it's brands like Rothy's, Brunt Workwear, Molecule, Athletic Greens, uh, these are all brands that have become industry leaders. And the reason that they have is because they've diversified their channels and with their channels, they're giving each one its due love versus giving partial love to it for a period of time and then stepping away. No, you, you couldn't have said it any better with, with regards to, particularly with regards to D2C, it's... It's a love child, really, for, for for consumer brands. You you do build relationships, you know, with with indeed to see you know one to one relationships, which is super super important. And I like I like what you said pre interview, where like you know people think you know in in terms of list, are you the top seven? And if you're not within their top seven list, you know you you don't exist. Um, so speaking to to that point, how how do you stay you know top of mind with um with with consumers, you know um particularly in in a crowded market you know like, like like we are right now yeah and it all it really does go back towards where do where do you fit into the mental model of their list when we think about top green powders we think athletic greens it just shows up in our mind because it's it's in the top 3 when we think about clean beauty we think true botanicals these names don't come up just because they haven't they've done the work in order to position themselves specifically in that space and the question is, is that can you as a brand 
either position yourself in that. If it is a competitive landscape, do you need to niche a little bit further into a positioning that you can be in the top five of? Or if you don't and not in the top five or the top seven, do you have enough money to make it to make it into the top five or seven? Because mm-hmm. you can make it, but it does require time and money. And if you don't have the time and money to be able to get there, maybe think about repositioning what you are selling and how you're selling it. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have to change your product, but you do have to change how you message it and position it towards becoming in the top five or in the top seven. Because when you don't exist in the top seven, and it's the funniest thing is I learned this from the book Jack Trout uh, created called Positioning a Battle for Your Mind, is that uh, the reason why we have the top seven wonders of the world or top Mm -hmm. seven list is because the human psychology is trained that we only remember up to seven. We have no idea how to remember past seven to the eighth, ninth, or tenth. Mm -hmm. So is there other eighth natural wonder of the world? Of course there is, but it just didn't make the top seven list. It didn't didn't crack it, so we didn't remember those things. So when we think about best cleaners, best tissues, all these things we have names for and we have brands that come to our mind and they exist in the top three, you have to get really real with yourself and as the brand owner to say, do you belong in that list or, or, or will you belong? Will you show up in that list? And if you do not show up on that list, think about repositioning a little bit because it doesn't mean that you can't ever get there. But if you don't find a placement for yourself now, it's going to be really hard to make it into that stage for future growth. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, so it's like with, with, the, with the AG1 um, example, say, you know, I was bringing my own new green powder uh, I would say, okay, am I, you know, the best green powder for yoga in the yoga community, you know, just as a focus initially. And once I conquer that, I could go into wellness and, you know, other niches before I say, okay, are we the number one green powder in the country or the world? Which Absolutely. is where AG1 is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because AG1 was not was not the conqueror of the best green powder five years ago, six years ago. There yeah. was a lot of other names that came to mind yeah. and, and now they are, but they didn't niche themselves into specific markets, took dominated those markets and then kept expanding yeah. further upstream. Yeah. And then there's also the, the bits of trust you and, and um, sort of transcending yourself beyond just performance marketing or, or paid to paid media. Um, so yes. who are the trust nodes we could attach to that will tell the story for us? So when people see, see our ads, they click more of our ads. When they see the landing page, they recognize those endorsers and it just smoothens the flow and um, the conversions and make, makes, you know, what you guys are doing, you know, just, just better, you know, um, because you're yeah. getting more data and the data is, is essentially feeding to what you're doing and you're, you're optimizing with, with all that traffic you're getting. Absolutely. And when you're in the, the startup stages, you're pivoting and trying a bunch of growth hack tactics out to help build trust or do things. But what, what I see in the best teams, whether it's with AG1, whether it's with Athletic Greens, whether it's True Botanicals, they've all kind of elevated their leadership teams and the teams that they have to help them think outside of the growth hack work mm-hmm. that got them to their stage of $10 million or $20 million. Because those tactics simply just do not work as you keep going upstream. And being able to have a really thoughtful leadership team or a new team come in and be able to elevate and see that, look, we need to keep focusing on trust. We still need to keep focusing on these things that keep the consumer engaged. And if we we try to build a, 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 a box builder because it's a cool new feature or the next quiz, that in itself is devaluing the brand. You know, I, I recently saw uh, a note about how Allbirds has, has not performed well. 
And uh, and it's such a, I always look at this brand because it's done so well D2C. It became a public company. They've, they've, they've done excessively well just as a D2C brand. But they changed their positioning. And I, I'm so interested in this and, 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 and flabbergasted by this, which is that they said, hey, we sell shoes that they're so soft that you don't need to wear socks. So that people got people behind it. It's like, wow, this is such an amazing soft shoe. Then tell me why in the last two years they started selling socks. <laughs> and it's, yeah. And it's just like, well, you think, well, it's another product. We can increase our AOV. Mm-hmm. We can increase these things. And you pay attention to these KPIs thinking, well, I want to elevate that. But you lose the long-term positioning and, and messaging that you're gaining. And if you, once you start doing that, you lose consumer trust. You lose consumer trust, you've lost pretty much all of it. And at that point, you start seeing declines because consumers start, they, they sniff that out and, and they're incredibly smart. So understanding what things you can do to elevate the brand versus what things you can do to just simply grow revenue. Those two do not go hand in hand. True, 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 true. Revenue is for your interest and growing the brand is to the interest of people who consume the brand, you know, consumers. Yes. Curious to know, selfish for myself, um, with your emerging plan, um, you, you're like on your website, you know, you start with two resources and then you, you start to scale up. What, what are the cost implications of working with an, with an agency, you know, like yours, um, you know, um, the dedicated resources, they're essentially hires through yours. Yeah. Um, how do you work out strategy at the level? So do you sort of um, have fractional strategy, you know, executives? Because obviously strategy doesn't need to be dedicated per se. And then project managers obviously will be, you know, sort of focused on on a client. How, how does it work? Um, and what, what are the cost implications? Just curious to know. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you hit it, the, the nail on its head. Uh, there are certain resources that being dedicated makes absolute sense. So, UX designer and UX researcher being like a or, or a combination resource being full time dedicated developers being full time dedicated those are the people that you need day in day out but then we offer project management quality assurance upon every team that that we deploy and then you get fractional access to our creative directors and our technical leads which are the technical architects but you also get access to our executive team so you're getting access to our our head of marketing our head of uh, optimization our COO and myself. And so we provide that all as like fractional executives being able to see the bigger picture and be able to come in and provide that on a monthly, if not quarterly basis to be able to give that level of guidance and and road mapping experience. And so all of that combined is roughly around $40,000. And the $40,000 is what you're getting for this dedicated on a monthly basis. uh, And you're getting access to this designer, developer, project management, QA, all bundled in. There is no surprise pricing. There is no additional pricing for anything else. All the executive outreach, the the executive, the fractional executive resources, the creative director, the technical lead, all comes encompassed in that price. So you're never seeing anything else in your billable line items uh, from, from our work. And then they're, they're in charge of your tech, essentially. So, so that's a line item you know, on your P&L, essentially, for, for, for tech. Okay, for, 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 for yeah. not just tech, but, but UX, UI, data, you know, and, and tech. 
And and where we where things differ for us is that because it's not just tech side, we're coming mm-hmm. into the optimization side. We technically hit the marketing budgets as well because yeah. when we can optimize and be able to create a lot of value, we are able to see million dollar, two million dollar lifts in different in directions with mm-hmm. our work on conversion rate or AOV or other other metrics. And so then our goal is to pay for ourselves in every single engagement. There's not a single engagement where we don't pay for ourselves, and if we don't. We already know it's it's not worth the value. Okay. So we're always uh, whether it's not just day to day maintenance or work, but it's around how do we optimize and elevate the brand to continue to grow uh, in the ways that it needs. So to. for for a forty million dollar brand, um, it's about it's, it's like a half a million dollar expense, you know. So yeah, it, it makes yes. it makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Makes yeah, sense. absolutely. Makes sense. I like your business model. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so 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 Nerev, um, before I let you go, we 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 have you know what, what I call a rapid fire question, you know, um, segment where I ask you about five or six questions, and if you could use a single sentence to answer them, it'll be a okay, and then we'll, we'll wrap up for for, for this interview. Okay, awesome, right. I'm, I'm down. All right, what's been your most meaningful business relationship in the last five years? Uh, there's two relationships, one with a company uh, with Mac Weldon and second with a company called Team Launch. Mm. Both are just su- such successful partnerships because of our relationship with the CEOs, but also just the larger team mission. Everything is just aligned and we love working with them. That's amazing. That was really fast. So <laughs> it must be really amazing. Um, are you a morning person? I am. Uh, I also have a son that's 20 months old, so he wakes me up every day at 5.30 in the morning, whether I want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) What does the rest of your morning routine look like? Um, I I start with a a little bit of a a light meditation uh, when I can get it and and that's there. Uh, I'll have my coffee. Uh, I'm a big espresso person and a coffee snob because I've learned how to make a proper shot of espresso. So that's that's my big thing. And if I can get it, a croissant to, to go along with it. You get get started. Okay, are you yeah. are you in sports? Um, I I love playing sports. I love playing team based sports when I can. Just got back from a, a guys weekend with sixteen guys, and all we did was play soccer, volleyball, basketball all together. So love love playing the sports. Uh, and not not a big watcher of sports besides uh, one sport being baseball. Baseball. So so, what's your favorite team? Uh, the Phillies. All right, the Phillies. Yeah. What two things you can't live without? Um, one being my, my family, um, they mean so much to me and I, I, I need them around in my life and, and who they are. So family and, uh, and kind of tagging along with that is just community. Um, I, I, I thrive in, in communities and, and friendships. So both family and community all tying into, um, just that ability to be around people. Cool. What book are you currently reading or listening to? Um, the book that I'm currently reading is, um, um, Rick Rubin's book okay. uh, on creativity. So that's right now on my shelf and I'm reading chapters of it every day. Fantastic. Finally, what's been your best mistake to date? By that I mean a setback that's given you the biggest feedback. B- biggest setback I would say is not, is employees that I've retained for too long and just simply, it, it's it's not just one mistake, but it's hundreds of ones. Over the last 15 years, I've hired probably close to 300 people. And when I've known that it isn't right for us, and the employee has known that it's not right for them to not cut ways, and that same goes with clients as well. When when you know it's time, 
you know it's time and being able to actually say that first versus allowing it to linger. And that has created relationships that I wish I could get I could be able to get back or be able to get back into a place where I, I really enjoyed it. Fair point, fair point. Nerv, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the 2X e-commerce podcast. For people who want to find out more about Anatta, it's A-N-A-T-T-A dot I-O. Um, are you active on any social channels? I am. I'm, a, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so anyone can find me there. Okay. We'll link to you on on, on, on LinkedIn. Um, for those people who, who are on their desktops, it's, it's Nerv, N-I-R-A-V, Chef, S-H-E-T-E. S-H-E-T-T-H. Um, just search him on, 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 on LinkedIn and just check the show notes and, and you get through to him. Nerev, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the 2X e-commerce podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's just so much fun. Brilliant. Cheers. <laughs>